Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Correction Service Canada is required by law to consider Paul Bernardo's risk and behaviors and not consider the politicians' emotions and political ambitions. Anthony Dube, who is a professor emeritus of criminology at the U of T, is going to join us and talk about that. Could a new national news policy actually save Canadian journalism? Strong opinions about that one. And wildfire smoke is blanketing Ontario and Quebec and now heading down into the States. What kind of health concerns should we be concerned about? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Bernardo decision uh, by, uh, well, that's being played and and has, like many other things in this country, become a political football uh, for an awful lot of people. I want to talk about that because I think there's a, a misunderstanding or maybe... Uh, an intended uh, muddling of the facts by some people here for political purposes, uh, because Bernardo, of course, uh, is being moved, we're told, and uh, p- some people are thinking that's actually a reward for something. We're not even sure of the details on this. Well, one of the architects of the law governing Canada's prisons says it's regrettable that Correction Services has not been more transparent in the recent prison transfer of uh, Paul Bernardo. Karen Rebo has details for us. Retired lawyer Mary Campbell is the former Director General of the Corrections and Criminal Justice Directorate. Regarding the public and political outrage in the case of schoolgirl killer and serial rapist Paul Bernardo, Campbell says the prison service has the power to make exceptions and release more information about his recent transfer from Ontario's maximum security Millhaven Institution to a medium security one in Quebec. She adds Bernardo's crimes were indeed horrific, but she notes the correctional system has a mandate to rehabilitate offenders. She insists inmate transfers and security classifications are not based on revenge. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. So, and as we've talked about on the program, in the absence of, of information, and, and there is an absence of information, I guess, with this this story, uh, comes speculation and, and, and misinformation in some cases too. So to add some clarity to exactly what's going on, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Anthony Dube. Uh, Anthony is a professor emeritus of criminology at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Let's let's talk a little bit about this, and and I, and I share the concern that a lot of other people have expressed here about how this has been used as as a as a political football. There's a, a, some misinformation going on. That maybe you can explain to us exactly uh, the process here. That uh, that Bernardo is not getting out of jail. This is not the first step towards parole, as somebody uh, mentioned yesterday. Uh, what what is happening here? Well, what's happening is that. Um, roughly every two years or so, uh, Corrections Canada has a has a uh, requirement to review the um, security classification of its prisoners. Bernardo has been in maximum security for thirty years, and that's it's very unusual that even somebody convicted of murder would stay that long in maximum security. So they reviewed it and decided that uh, it was appropriate to move him into a medium, a, a particular medium security institution uh, in Quebec. And I think that what one has to remember is that this is a security decision. Uh, the, <coughs> the general, <coughs> excuse me, the general rule is that the person should be uh, no higher than is necessary. This is a medium security institution, which means it has a secure perimeter and so on. It There is a little bit more movement probably within the institution than he's used to. 
But I think that the idea basically is twofold. One is that um, he uh, is that the security of the institution he's in is sufficient to keep him from escaping, and and clearly a medium security would do that. Uh, and second is that putting him in this particular institution would not risk uh, other people. And so Corrections uh, Canada made a decision on that basis. It doesn't say anything about what's going to happen to him in the future. Uh, he could be in medium security for the rest of his life, uh, and probably, I mean, my suspicion is that he will be in medium or maximum security uh, forever. So it doesn't say anything about the uh, about whether or not he's going to be released or whether he's on his way to being released. Uh, there are substantial numbers of uh, people who are convicted of murder uh, who are in medium security. And you've seen some of the the, the comments uh, from some people saying, well, you know, he should be locked up 24 hours of the day I would, and a number of other things like that. And and I know, the, you know there, there's anger and it's renewed anger. I mean, you know, many of, of us covered the, the murder <laughs> trials and, and it was a the horrific time when, when the two girls were, first of all, kidnapped and then brutally murdered. Uh, and they want to see, they don't want to see punishment. They want to see vengeance exacted in situations like this. And, yeah, and I, I, I suppose it's, it's understandable, but it's not really the way the system works, is it? It's understandable. And we, we, you know, we don't have a, uh, a correctional system that uh, includes torture. And basically what we're saying here is that uh, this, the correctional system uh, is there to uh to keep the person in, I mean, it, it's designed to keep the person in prison. It's designed also for those who will eventually be released to rehabilitate them. And among those who are, for example, in his case, uh, uh, convicted of murder and various other things, uh, one doesn't necessarily choose or allow the public to choose which ones they're going to, um, you know, be vengeful toward. So that you have, you know, lots of people in Canada's prisons for murder, and we don't say, well, if there's uh, if there's public outrage, we're going to allow the rules to be bent so that this person can be uh, dealt with in a particularly unpleasant way. I mean, I think it's important to to start with the idea that it's important for Correctional Services of Canada to follow the law, and it's important that that Correctional Service of Canada not be driven by uh, understandable uh, feelings that Bernardo is among the worst of the worst. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's perfectly reasonable for us to hold the view that he's among the worst of the worst. And quite frankly, I think most of us are happy that somebody else is making the decision about that because uh, they're trained and expected to be following the law. Well, talk to us about the, the designation of, of dangerous offender uh, and that, that he's carried with him, which I guess initially is is reflective of the crimes that he was convicted of. Uh, but that's, as, as I think you just explained to us a second ago here, uh, the designation now is that when you talk about danger to other, it's danger to, to the prison population. He's not getting out of jail by any stretch of the imagination. That's right. So he's not getting out of jail. The dangerous offender <clears throat> designation is... Uh, 
I mean, normally given to people who are not getting life sentences and maybe not eligible for life sentences in terms of the law, but because of the nature of their offenses and so on, the judge at sentencing on the motion of use of the crown uh, designates them as a dangerous offender, and if they are designated as a dangerous offender, they get an indeterminate sentence. Now, Bernardo was already <clears throat> getting indeterminate life sentences uh, for his murders, so it was redundant in that way, but it was sending a message that the rapes that he committed um, uh, the numerous rapes that he committed are going to count for something, that they're going to be, in effect, additional crimes that he was convicted of, and they're additional crimes that um, clearly are going to go to that sentence, so that he, instead of being sentenced for a specific number of years for those crimes, it gets an indeterminate sentence. I mean, you know, we we nobody can predict the future perfectly, but I think that if uh, one were to predict whether or not Paul Bernardo will ever get out, I think that the answer is no. But there is a process that's in place, and in, in there's whether a process. It's Look, he's already applied for parole uh, a number of times, and he's been turned back by the parole board. It's his right to apply, and it's the parole board's responsibility to consider that application and decide whether or not he should be released. Uh, the parole board has turned him down uh, a couple of times, and my suspicion will be that he will apply at every possible opportunity, and they will turn him down uh, in the future the way they have in the past. Uh, well, and we, you know, the, we've seen the, that. Go ahead. go ahead, Doug. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we've seen that with the, the Robert Pictons and the C Clifford Olsons as well, haven't we? Yes, and there's, you know, the problem is that you know, people are outraged that he can even apply for parole. Well, how do you determine which lifers can and cannot apply for parole? And I think that the answer is we allow everybody, according to law, to uh, ask for release, and we uh, we give responsibility to the Parole Board of Canada uh, to consider those, and it's not surprising to me at all that they've turned down Paul Bernardo, as as you mentioned, as they have uh, other, uh, you know, horrendous murders. Mm -hmm. I mean, they do parole murders. I mean, let's get real about this. I mean, there are a, a non-trivial number of, of people who've been convicted of murder who are in our community, and compared to other uh, people who offend, uh, they are, uh, they're very, very unlikely to reoffend. On the other hand, Paul Bernardo isn't a normal person. So I think, you know, we're not, ex nobody's expecting him to be released. And, uh, in, in that sense, what we should be talking about is only, uh, whether or not the, uh, Correctional Service of Canada has done anything very unusual and moving a murderer from maximum security to, me to medium security is not an unusual act, especially the institution that he went to. He he's being sent to an institution that has sex offenders and other people who are at risk uh, from the general population uh, within the penitentiaries. So, you know, were it not Paul Bernardo, were it not somebody whose name we all know, uh, this would not be an issue at all. 
Uh, it's, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, been dragged into the political realm uh, by some folks up in Ottawa these days. Uh, and I'd like to tap into your expertise on that, if I could, uh, too, Professor, uh, suggesting that, uh, that you know, first of all, that the, the prime minister is, as according to Mr. Pauly, the prime minister should make sure that uh, that any dangerous offender like Bernardo uh, must always serve all of their term in a maximum security prison. That's kind of getting into the realm, I think, of mandatory sentencing, which I think the Supreme Court's yeah. already ruled on. But uh, the other element of this is go ahead well the other element is uh it's not up to the prime minister to determine sentence that's that's the courts that do that isn't it i mean we, we do have well, lines that are drawn here there, there are two lines and neither line does the prime minister come to the right side of the line the, the it's the court who sentenced him sentences him to 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 penitentiary in this case it was a mandatory sentence because he was convicted of murder so it's automatic that he gets uh, a life sentence so that's what the court does. But then the court really is uninvolved, and it's the correctional authorities and eventually the parole board of Canada. And so the correctional authorities decide how he's to be treated within the correctional system. And the separate uh, parole board of Canada decides uh, whether he's not whether he's to be released. And what we, the reason we do that, and the reason we have the separation is because each one is looking at a different thing. The, the correctional authorities are looking at, essentially, what's the best way to uh, detain this person, to keep them in, in prison, and uh, as a general rule, uh, to uh, ensure that if they are ever released, they are as rehabilitated as possible. So that's their responsibility. It's not the prime minister's, it's not the parole board. The parole board then makes the decision about whether it's to be released. And I think that the reason we don't uh, have politicians making these decisions is that then it becomes completely arbitrary. Paul Bernardo has name recognition in our society. Somebody who might have done a you know, horrific crime to a single person in a small community and without all of the stuff that, you know, that we all remember from 30 years ago with Paul Bernardo, uh, such a person is then not going to come, I mean, a person who doesn't have the characteristics of, of Paul Bernardo's case in terms of face recognition, uh, that person isn't going to come to a politician's attention. So you don't want it to be how much publicity a person gets. Uh, you want it to be done on more kind of rational, principled, uh, uh, I, I, you know, facts. And I think that what's happened with with Bernardo is the politicians are uh, wading into something that they uh, should want to stay away from. Uh, it's not in in their interest, and it isn't the in the interests of the fair treatment of prisoners uh, for politicians to be making these decisions just because it's good politics. Well, and it's may it may make for good political theater, I guess, for some people. But it's it's the, and I'm sure they know where those lines are anyway. So, I mean, the reality here is that that's not going to happen. I mean, the you know the 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 prime minister or any other government official can't step in in there and say, okay, put that guy back over there. That's that's as I say, we we do have lines. We in our constitution between the judiciary and the, and the legislative side of things. And uh, never the twain shall meet as far as, as most people are concerned anyway. It's hard to know what the politicians know. I mean, look, the minister of public yeah. safety is quoted as saying that 
that this decision to move Paul Bernardo into medium security is shocking and incom- incomprehensible. Uh, it may be shocking to him, but it's not in- incomprehensible. I mean, if he knew what the law was when he was saying that, it's very peculiar that he would say it. If he didn't know what the law was, he should have known. Because it is quite comprehensible that somebody who's been there for 30 years is going to be placed in a different institution, uh, which also has high security around it, uh, but is... uh, you know, focusing on sex offenders and those who are at risk within the institution. So it, it, it's quite comprehensible, it seems to me, that, uh, that Bernardo be moved. Uh, as I said, I'm not looking at this at all in terms of Bernardo ever getting free. This is, mm-hmm. this is moving him around from one secure institution to another. So I, I don't understand when the public safety minister is saying it's incomprehensible. I mean, if it's incomprehensible to to him, he should learn something. Uh, We'll have to leave it at that. Uh, We're just about out of time. Professor, always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you. That's Professor Anthony Dupe from the University of Toronto, Professor Emeritus of Criminology. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canadians know how important news is and access to quality local journalism particularly is essential for not just the well-being of their communities, for the well-being of our democracy. We will continue to make sure that these incredibly profitable corporations contribute to strengthening our democracy, not weakening it. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, responding to, uh, well, the, the battle that's going on right now between some of these social media platforms, and not just the Canadian government, by the way. Similar debates are happening in other countries, too. Uh, and, and the fate of journalism, uh, of real journalism, is, is really in the balance here in many of these cases. Uh, so how do we handle something like this? Well, our next guest has some perspective on that. Peter Menzies is a national newspaper award-winning journalist. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, past editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, former vice chair of the CRTC. And he joins us to talk about a, a rather conclusive paper that uh, gives an outline as to, as to maybe where we should be going on this. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could jump on with us today. Well, thank you, Bill, for the opportunity. Happy to chat. Well, and I, I read your, the, the report last night and the thing going forward. I just want to comment on a couple of the things here, but some elements that, that would maybe help. And we already know, of course, that, that Meta slash Facebook uh, has already responded to this legislation by basically blocking access to news media uh, to some people. They say they're doing it on an arbitrary basis. They shouldn't be doing it at all. But, but how, how do you counteract something like this, Peter? And how do, you, how do you put some wind back beneath the wings in journalism right now? Well, you do it by constructing your legislation uh, properly. Um, you know, one of the problems with the Bill C-18 debate is that uh, the, the government has always taken it to the end. That it's sort of if you're opposed to this or the construction of this, that means you're opposed to democracy. That means you're opposed to journalism. That means you're opposed to fairness. That means you back big tech, we, all of which is just childish and, and not productive. Uh, a lot of the problems with Bill C-18 are in its structure. It has this this ridiculous sort of pay-per-links expectation that you will pay based on the number of posts that uh, that media put on. And it creates an unlimited liability for the tech companies that if they were to concede in Canada, would be duplicated all around the world, and it would cost them tens of billions of dollars. 
So it's just poorly constructed legislation from that end. Our policy paper suggests a much better way to get to the same end. I want to get into that too in our time this morning, uh, because the consumer, and you know, we're all consumers of news in one way or another. Uh, I think is very confused right now. You know that we know, uh, you know, from the stories that we've been covering over the last number of years that, that, that newspapers, radio stations—I mean, the, the media—are all suffering because of lack of revenue. Because a lot of people are going over to social media to get their information instead of, and that, of course, revenues are down. Newspapers put up paywalls, and they say, oh, "I'm not going to pay for that. I, I can go online and do whatever I want." Uh, and and they're the ones stuck in the middle. But you know, the, I don't know that they're getting all the facts about why things are the way they are right now. No, they're not. I mean, and, and people don't go to necessarily Facebook. They go to other media for, for, for yeah. news and information, I suppose, and they can always go directly to people's websites just because, I mean, Facebook, I don't think, is bluffing at all in this situation. I don't think it actually has any option other than to not not carry news links before. People go to Facebook primarily to see pictures of their friends' grandchildren and catch up on vacation. It, it is a truly sort of social network in that regard. A lot of other advertising disappeared, like from newspapers, classified advertising disappeared to Kijiji and Craigslist. No question the Internet has had a huge impact, and no, absolutely no question that the big tech companies were able to monopolize a lot of it. I mean, they have 80% of the digital revenue um, because they created a better, more efficient way for advertisers to reach people. But certainly people would be confused, and a lot of the confusion comes from the heightened rhetoric around this, right? The, uh, the the use of the phrase stealing, you know, that uh, Meta has been stealing our our content and that sort of stuff, which is, it, it's not supported by, by, by fact in terms of that. There's no stealing going on. But when you heighten rhetoric like that, uh, you're going to confuse people. But I think the, rec- the rhetoric is heightened intentionally. So you reap what you sow. There's a famous line from that uh, Aaron Sorkin TV show from years ago called The Newsroom, uh, you know, where the, the, the owner of the newspaper is saying, you've got to get people back say we've lost uh, confidence. Of the, he says, and she says, get it back. How does, how does <laughs> the media, how does the media get it back? I mean, uh, we want people to, to listen to radio. We want people to, to read newspapers. We want them to, to get facts. There's some incredible journalists that are working on stories right now, and this is a very, very important time, of course, in our history because of what's going on. How do you get them back into the fold? How do you get them believing again? Well, I mean, you focus on, <laughs> you focus on telling them the truth. You, uh, if you are a reporter, you don't go on Twitter and share your personal opinions on things because that undermines your reputation for fairness and objectivity. I understand there's a big debate within the journalism community about whether objectivity is the standard they should follow. If, uh, if they abandon objectivity, there is no hope um, that they will reclaim uh, the public's trust because the public wants objectivity in its news. It wants to decide what news means on its own. It doesn't want to be preached to. I mean, you have commentators to analyze that, uh, talk show hosts and that sort of stuff, people who can express a point of view and stir the pot for debate, and that's all healthy too. But I think there really needs to be a refocus there on that. And the other thing is, do not allow yourself to get um, in bed with government. I mean, you can, and this is one of the reasons behind the, the national news policy idea that Conrad and I have developed. You need a, uh, I mean, government has to be involved in that, I get it, but you need to structure it so that government 
once the once the legislative uh, once the policies are in place, government can no longer control anything like that because people expect you guys in media to protect them from the powers that be. You know, there's a lot of powerful people out there. There's you know, big tech companies are powerful in gathering your data, and there's big media companies, and and then there's big government. All of those things are threats to your freedom and and that sort of stuff. And people count on media to defend them from that. But as soon as you, you and that's one of the things I took from the from reading the report last night. Uh, as soon as you start accepting government money, uh, you're leaving yourself open to the criticism that well, you're you're in their pocket. Uh, even if it's not true, the perception is there, and the perception becomes the reality. I mean, the most blatant example of that, of course, is CBC. But, but you know, with subsidies and okay, we know you're losing money, so we're gonna we're gonna you know throw some money at you now. Uh, that that doesn't seem to me to be a long term solution. In other words, I think it erodes credibility. Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, it does. And you know, and 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 you run into a number of reporters who say, "Well, that's not going to change me. That's not going to change." It doesn't matter what they think. What you think as a reporter? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I worked in the news long enough to know it matters what you're, what the person consuming the news thinks. That's that's the only thing that matters in terms of that. So that's why, like, the the we. I mean, there is a fund as part of the news policy that we've suggested. But what happens with that? Is the government's not involved at all in that, other than applying a levy uh, to the big tech companies, which goes into a fund which is managed by the news industry itself and distributed on a per capita basis. So there's no preference whatsoever. The, the reporter at the Alaska Highway News gets the same funding as the reporter at the at the Globe and Mail. Um, if, if that's the way it works, but and that by doing it just as a levy, the government isn't providing the money. The money's coming from the big tech companies in exchange for their impact on on the news e- ecosystem and their and their debt debt and the, and the value of the the data that uh, news consumers provide to them in in terms of that, and it just keeps the government out of it. I was looking at the recommendations. I know our time is limited here. We could spend three hours talking about this, Peter. I think it's such an important aspect. And, we could and, spend all weekend talking about it. Oh, I, I probably could. Yeah, uh, not sure. But, but uh, if we, we, they'd probably at some point jump in here and say we got to talk about other stuff. But anyway, the the point here is: is there unanimity here? In other words, I'm, I'm looking at these recommendations. I think that makes sense. That makes sense. Is this doable though? Is 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 it practical? Is there unanimity within the industry to say, yeah, this has got to be part of the solution? Because uh, if you speak with one voice to the government, uh, they might listen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the thing. News Media Canada, in terms of the lobbying for Bill C-18, has claimed, to, and it did at the Senate meetings last week, claimed to speak for, you know, for everyone, but it doesn't. Um, there are independents. There are people who will, you know, for whom taking any money from government at all is a hill to die on. There's people who've been taking it through the Canada Periodical Fund for for decades, um, who you know, who don't bat an eye at it uh, in, in, in terms in terms of that sort of stuff. So, um, one of the things that's lacking is there is no national organization. I mean, broadcasters have the the CAB, so they they speak through that and they have their debates internally and then formulate positions. And uh, when I was at the CRTC, that was kind of appreciated because you. You, you you got a single point of view coming forward, but mm-hmm. single point of view was developed from multiple points of view, so the common ground was established. Um, you know, the news industry has work to do 
in order to gather that. Like the way we've pointed out in this paper, I, I think these are I think these are absolutely doable. Um, each individually is a sensible idea, and and having and coordinating with the CRTC that often demands that people do news where they don't need to and don't want to and that sort of stuff. CRTC needs to be a partner in all this too. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, there's work to be done, but it's all doable. And, uh, you know, I mean, the easy thing is C18 was probably the easiest thing, but it's because it is failing. Uh, the the uh, It may provide the impetus for the industry to get its act together because broadcasters certainly... We- and, what I would call online publishers don't always disagree, even though broadcasters are kind of online publishers now, too. Yeah. Well, I, I just hope the government doesn't think, go, okay, we passed the legislation and put the toolkit away if this is done. But anyway, uh, this is a great catalyst for the conversation. I wish we did have more time, and maybe we can pick up on this later on. Peter, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the time this morning. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Peter Menzies, a National Newspaper Award winner uh, and, a, and a very, very strong advocate for what needs to be done here to get things fixed. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Climate change isn't only warming the air, but causing more frequent wildfires that pollute the clean air we need to remain healthy. We need to confront issues of both climate change and air pollution together in order to reduce our risks from air quality. There seems to be heightened awareness of the role played by climate change. I think we're in big trouble this early in the year for this to happen. Big trouble. Of course, it's a health issue if, if in fact, I'm inhaling stuff that I shouldn't be inhaling. Millions of Canadians are now dealing with smoky air. While it lasts, the advice is to spend more time indoors and don't exert yourself if you're outdoors. Eric Sorensen, Global News, Toronto. Well, that's uh, thank you, Eric. That's uh, the the basic outline of what's been going on for the last little while. But uh, as he, as Eric mentioned in his report, I don't know we've talked to any experts at all that can recall it being this bad this early in the season. Glad you're with us today. We're going to get into further detail on this. The Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. And the, and the question, I guess, that everybody's asking, and not just here in Canada now, uh, but even down through the United States where the uh, the smoke is starting to drift in toward is how's this going on? What's happening here? And why is it so severe? Our next guest can shed some light on that. Uh, Matthew Adams is an assistant professor and GIS program director of geography, geomatics, and environment at the University of Toronto. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, I know you've got to be very busy these last couple of days. I appreciate you joining us for a few minutes. Thanks for being on the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. Well, I'll go right to the, I guess, the bottom line question. How did this happen and how did it get as monstrous as it has? Well, if you speak to the forest scientists, they've been warning us about this for many years now. Climate change is drying. We're seeing more drought. We're seeing conditions that are building up more material to burn. And we just are starting to see the effects of climate change. I think in Canada, it's one of our first you know, real personal effects. We've been isolated from a lot of the effects that we see around the world. But unfortunately, you know, dry season, and it, it is really early in the year for this to happen. Dry season, big forest fires through Quebec. Uh, it just happens that we have the right wind masses that we're bringing that air down through Toronto, Ottawa, well, really all of southern Ontario. So it's probably something we're going to see more frequently, unfortunately. Well, it's, you know, when you look at this, uh, as you obviously have uh, with your expertise, uh, but you look at a map of Canada right now, 
Uh, and you've seen some of the headlines in some of the papers. Canada is burning. I mean, I, I've never seen it this extensive. We've heard, oh, there's a terrible wildfire in BC. Oh, God, I hope that they fix that up. And we know about Fort McMurray a few years ago and, and how monstrous that was. But to have them in well, almost every province now, except for Saskatchewan, and that may only be because they don't have that many trees there, uh, it, it just seems as if this, this is... Well, it is catastrophic, certainly, but to have so many like this right now, it's it's overwhelming, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's something we're not used to. I think for all of us that live in Toronto, Hamilton, this area, we're not used to forest fires. Now, the only time we smell campfires when we're having it maybe at a barbecue. Uh, this year, hopefully, is not indicative of the future. But if you look at what the climate scientists have been telling us, the forest modelers, Canada has excellent resources in understanding forest fire because we are... You know, we deal with this every single year, but you're right. Most of the time it's out west uh, in less densely populated areas, but we're seeing it, you know, in Halifax, for example, a lot of people losing their homes there. We're seeing, we're going to see this more and more often as the climate dries and we get more drought conditions. We all saw what happened through California over the last few years in those drought conditions. It's, it's a scary time that we're headed towards potentially. Well, yeah, we have friends uh, that live in Southern California in the L.A. area, and uh, it's, you're right. I mean, the, the population down there, it's, it's just a, like its form follows function. You know, okay, it's springtime now. Here come the forest fires again. And they're constantly, I mean, smelling smoke. And it's 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 rather daunting. I mean, you know, I finished the show yesterday, went to walk the dog, and, and I felt like I was, you know, standing in the middle of a, of a campfire. I mean, it's it was that dense, and, and you could almost taste it. Oh, I absolutely agree. I've been hearing lots of reports of people having a lot of respiratory disease issues over the last couple of days. Just common people, you know, who are generally healthy every day are coughing, wheezing, you know, feeling those shortness of breath. You know, we really do during these periods of elevated smoke pollution need to stay indoors. We need to follow those instructions. Hopefully it's infrequent. You know, it's not something we're used to though. And it's something that's pretty new to many individuals. You know, trying to explain to my daughter that her T-ball game was canceled because of the smoke yesterday, for example, is a tough one. It's a new thing that we have to deal with. Yeah, and it's, uh, well, we know flights have been canceled in New York, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when it happens to this magnitude and, and it gets up into the atmosphere as this one has right now, uh, what are the dangers, uh, the health dangers? I mean, some of them are obvious. Yeah, you can smell smoke. But I guess sometimes we kind of lose sight of the fact that if we can smell it, we're, we're breathing it too. Yeah, absolutely. So for events like this, you know, one we're seeing in Toronto, we're thinking of short-term immediate effects. A lot of those are around cardiorespiratory. So things, you know, when you're breathing, if you already have pre-existing heart or lung disease or challenges, you're really likely to have an event by breathing in this air. Asthma, we were expecting a lot more people to be having asthma attacks, needing their rescue inhalers more often. And we're gonna see more and more people ending up in the hospital. Those are our short-term immediate effects. Some of the work we've seen and we've done and others have done in areas that see more frequent wildfires it can be all sorts of things. For example, we see that babies are born more often at lower birth weights. And, and that's troubling because that persists through, you know, medical challenges often throughout their entire lives. And we've seen, well, all, all of a sudden, air quality index readings, which we don't usually see this time of year. And when you get into severe uh, situations like that, and apparently an awful lot of, especially, as you say, around the GTHA right now, uh, it is that way. Uh, and it seems to get worse as the day goes on. Is, is that simply because of, of the increasing mass? And, and, and why does it seem to dissipate in the evening? Uh, there's going to be, we're going to have to work that one out. 
over the next few <laughs> next few months in the analysis of all of the data. I don't have a direct answer for you, but you know the climate model or the fire models have been pretty good. They've been predicting the peaks during the day, and then it has been dissipating at night. So you know, kind of plan your day accordingly. It looks like air quality around Hamilton, the GTA, is pretty good today. Hopefully, that stays. It's predicted to increase throughout the day, but you know that's a model. It's a prediction. It, it does its best job. I, I was going to ask you how they spread as fast as they do. And, and I know the obvious answer is, well, it's, it's wood. Of course, it burns. Uh, but we've seen the, the way that it, it almost sweeps down. And, and it's not just a one tree at a time. It just seems like a, a, a wall of flames all of a sudden uh, can appear in some of these situations. Uh, is, is it simply the dry, the, the dry wood, the tender uh, that, that exposes it like that? I mean, it, it seems as if it, it's, it, it's a, it looks like a monster attacking a forest as opposed to just you know some flames yeah absolutely it's going to be a few different factors but the dryness the drought conditions that have been experienced it's just it's dry it's flammable and depending on how the forest practices in different areas can encourage kind of rapid spread depending on how forestry has been practiced in that area as well I remember talking to somebody who was uh, with the Fort McMurray fire a couple of years ago, of course, in, in Alberta, uh, doing a live TV report, as a matter of fact, and you could see the, the forest in the background, and there was nothing. I mean, he says it's just over that ridge. And as he was talking to me, all of a sudden, that whole forest backdrop lit, lit up, like, oh, just boom, like that, like somebody just throw a flamethrower at it or something like that. Now, that's how quickly it can spread, uh, which is problematic for people living in nearby communities, isn't it? You don't know how fast it's going to happen and, and, and where, which way the directions are going to go. Is it dependent totally on wind or is there some other pattern or non-pattern that, that, that may happen? A lot of that's going to be driven by wind, absolutely. Uh, it's semi-predictable but winds can change really rapidly. And especially as you get closer to, you know, built up environments, those wind patterns can become more erratic. And so it does, it spreads. And I remember watching those as well. We have family who is up in Fort McMurray at the time mm -hmm. and just seeing the videos, it was just uh, so scary. And thankfully, much of the fires are hopefully going to continue burning in less populated areas. And the populated areas are just going to be dealing with smoke for the next few days, hopefully. How do we combat, uh, not the fires themselves, but the circumstance? I mean, you're, you're right to a certain extent. We got ourselves into this mess uh, with bad behavior and, and not respecting the environment to the degree that we should. Uh, but this is, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, part of a, a, a global uh, phenomenon right now. I mean, other parts of the world are experiencing massive flooding. Uh, it just seems that everything that could go wrong, the, the weather calamities that are, are happening, but they're happening to a, a much greater degree now. I know, and it's scary. I think we have to start taking our greenhouse gas emission goals more seriously uh, in Canada and globally. You know, the most recent IPCC report demonstrated we're nowhere near reaching our objectives in the next 10 to 15 years. And that's something we need to get under control. Otherwise, you know, all of the predictions are coming true. These scientists have been, you know, working on this for many years and have been warning us for a very long time. But it's one of those things that was always in the future. And now the future is here. And I think we're going to really need to take seriously our greenhouse gas emissions to try and get them under control and hopefully very soon. Well, and of course, there are still some deniers. And I guess that's going to be driving the bus for some people anyway, unfortunately. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for spending some time with us and trying to uh, shed some light onto this. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me.
Take care. Uh, Professor Matthew Adams uh, from uh, University of Toronto, uh, specialty in environment and uh, geomatics. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.